you will, turn in your Bibles to the 23rd chapter of the Gospel of Matthew as we continue our study through the Word. So Jesus makes his triumphal entry. He enters into the temple. He overturns the tables. And you'll remember the response to that was the next day. They come and ask Jesus by what authority he does that. And Jesus answers them, I'll answer you that if you tell me the authority behind John. And, and they won't answer that. And Jesus launches it into those three parables, those three judgment and parables against the religious leaders. And they recognize that they were the point of Jesus' parables. And, and so they take counsel together. What are we going to do? He, he is coming in every day into the very temple itself and teaching right in front of us. And so they formulate their attack plan on Jesus. And you remember that it was the Herodians and Pharisees and, and they come first asking Jesus whether or not to pay taxes. The, the next group, they, they come, the Sadducees, and, and they have their question about the resurrection. And then and finally, the Pharisees come back with the question about the law. What is the greatest of all of the commandments? And you'll remember that Jesus responds with the portion of the Shema, the daily prayers that they would say every single day. And taken out of Deuteronomy, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he added, and, and love your neighbor as yourself. And upon these two are the entire law built. You see, God is love. And God's desire is to have a loving relationship with you. That's why he created you. You were created by God to love him and to be loved by him. And, and so God describes now in the law, the relationship that we are to have with them. It is a, a description of the relationship. But the fulfillment of that is found in the experience of loving God and being loved by God. You see, you can read all about a, a marriage and what you're supposed to do in a marriage and the rules of a marriage and the description of what love looks like in a marriage. And, and you can read all of that. But the fulfillment of all of that is found in a loving marriage. That is where you experience what is described for you. You see, the Word of God is the description of our relationship with God. And so, ultimately, its fulfillment is found in the experience of loving God and being loved by God. And then he says, we are connected to one another and we are to love one another. And so upon all of this, he summarizes the entirety of the Bible, love God and love others. And so you will remember that, that now afterwards, the, the question that Jesus had for them was, who's the son is the son of David. Who is the son of David? And he takes them to the scriptures to show them that the Messiah is more than just the son of David, but he is also the Lord of David, pointing to not just the humanity of the Messiah, but also to the deity of the Messiah. 
Jesus is in the final week of his ministry. The, the cross is looming. The shadow is growing large. The time is running out to prepare and to equip the apostles to be able to take and, and to bring the gospel to the world. And, and so we see Jesus speaking about the, uh, the kingdom building. And, and one of the things that we are going to see here is his attack upon Judaism. The way that Judaism had now been formulated into the structure that the, that the Pharisees uh, had it. And so to the Jews, the Pharisees were living out Judaism in its purest form. And so Jesus now is going to point out that, 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 the, that the Pharisaical Judaism is not the heart of God, and it is not the heart of the kingdom of God that is being established. And, and so we are going to see that revelation as Jesus now begins to show the people the problem with the Pharisaical Judaism. Let's see how Matthew records it for us beginning here in the first verse. And it says, Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. And so here is Jesus, and he is speaking to the multitudes, and he's also speaking to his disciples. And, and he talks to them about the scribes and the Pharisees. And the first thing that he says about them is that they sit in Moses' seat. Now, what does that mean? When you read that, that the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Now, it's interesting because there is a literal seat in the synagogue that is called the Moses' seat, and that is where the rabbi would sit when teaching. But it also refers to the authority that came down from Moses himself as the deliverer of the law to the people. And so here we see that the Jews had a saying that Moses received the law and delivered it to Joshua, and Joshua to the elders, and the elders to the prophets, and then the prophets to the men of the great synagogue. And so the men of the great synagogue, these are the, the scribes now, the Pharisees. And, and so the law had been passed down. Now, you'll remember how the Jews were taken into captivity by the Babylonians. And and then underneath Ezra in Nehemiah, they return back again. And Nehemiah finds a copy of the law. And he reads a copy of the law to the people. And there is this incredible national dedication of the people to the keeping of the law. They recognize that they had been chastised by God when they had lost their nation. And they were captives there in Babylon. They realized that they were to stay separate from the pagan culture that was around them, the Canaanites that had had the land before. But idolatry and false worship entered in and the people strayed. And so God took them out of the land and gave them a time out, 70 years in Babylon, and now they come back again. And when they read the law, they realize how far from the law that they have strayed. And there is en masse this national commitment that we are going to keep the law of God. We failed, they repented, they got right, and now the, the law was the most important possession that they had. They were still a conquered nation. 
beginning with Babylon, then the Medo-Persians conquered the Babylonians, and they were underneath the Medo-Persians, and then the Greeks conquered the Medo-Persians, and, and it was now underneath the Greeks that we saw the next phase of what took place in Judaism. The Greeks, they not only conquered the world, but they wanted to replace the culture of the world with the Greek culture. They unified the world in the Greek language. Rome unified the world with its roads, but the world was unified underneath the culture of the Greeks and, and the Greek language. And the Greeks, uh, in an aggressive attempt to stamp out Judaism, Antiochus Epiphanes came into Jerusalem and he took a pig and he slaughtered a pig in the temple and desecrated the temple trying to replace the god of the Jews with the pagan gods that the Greeks uh, worshipped. And this created an absolute rebellion amongst the Jews. This was known as the Maccabean Revolt, takes place because of this. And the most precious possession that the Jews had was the law. They were occupied, but they had the law. And so there was this pushback by the Jews, and, and we see that then there, there was this commitment by, by men to not allow the Greek culture to be forced on them by, uh, by the Greeks that were ruling. And so there was a group known as the separatists, the Pharisees. And in a response to that, they were determined that they're going to live out the law that had been handed down to its minutest detail, that they were not going to allow any compromise whatsoever with the pagan influence that was being forced upon them. This is the, the, the backbone of the Pharisees, the group of the Pharisees. And so they took a countermeasure of interpreting the law down to every single aspect of their life. Every single decision. How does God want us to do this? And it's like, how should we boil water? Well, what does God say? You know, and if you couldn't find a verse on how to boil water, you would take principles from verses and then you would come up with a way to boil water. And so this now became a, a tradition now. The Pharisees would boil water in a certain fashion. How would you wash your hands? Well, you know, and they, they they would make their decisions and, and then they would write this down and then this was how you were supposed to wash their hand. All of this in an attempt to create a culture that honored the word of God and that didn't allow any compromise with the world that was around them. And so they were esteemed. They were held in high respect by the people. These were the men that were committed to God with a zealous and a passion that really didn't even prevent you from working. You, you couldn't have an ordinary job. You couldn't live a normal life. You were so absolutely consumed with living your entire life in accordance to the law. And so they became legalists. They, they argued over every single aspect of, of everything that was in their life. But their hearts originally had been pure before God. It had been an attempt to honor God and to live the way that God wanted. By the time of Jesus' day, it had devolved into a competition amongst the Pharisees as to who could keep more of the law than, than anybody else. And then there was the, the liberal 
Pharisees, and there was the conservative Pharisees, and, and you had different groups of Pharisees, and, and they competed with one another to say that they were the, the true Pharisees. And, and so what started off as an attempt to live holy and pure before God turned into a monstrous set of rules and, and regulations and now that was nothing more than a competition played amongst the Pharisees in the sight of men. The heart towards God wasn't even remotely there. And so Jesus begins by saying that they sit on the seat of Moses, meaning that, that they do have authority, that this is a proper handing down of the law that was given to Moses. And, and the Pharisees now are the gatekeepers of the word of God. And so he authenticates the authority of the Pharisees. And, and then he goes on to say that, that therefore whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But do not do according to their work, for they say and do not do. Here we see that once again, Jesus is always reinforcing the lines of authority. He authorizes government and the authority of the government. He says, submit to the authority of your government. We see that the Pharisees had spiritual authority with the word of God. He says, submit to the spiritual authority of the Pharisees. But he says, don't follow them. Don't, don't be like them. Re respect them don't copy them. He says, for they bind heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. In other words, they, they now were not even able to keep the law that, that they had interpreted it into, the oral tradition and the addition to the law in this entire structure. They couldn't even keep it. And then they were not able and not willing to help any normal person incorporate the law into their life. How, how does a person that has a job and has a family and has a wife, how does he keep the law? And, and they were not helping whatsoever with the normal person and the cares and the concerns. They weren't lifting one finger to make any of this a practical reality in the life of the Jew. But all their work, he says, they do to be seen by men. And they make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. We see that they performed the good works that they were doing weren't good works that were offered up to God as an act of worship. Even their good works had now the motive of being recognized and seen by men that they might be praised by men. They desperately wanted the respect and the praise of men. They were the consummate man-pleasers. And they loved their power and their position and being looked up to as these you know, dedicated men that, you know, that really were pursuing God. But the reality is they weren't pursuing God. They were pursuing the praise of men. He says, and they make their phylacteries 
phylactery is broad. What, what is Jesus talking about? A phylactery uh, was a, a, a box that they would put scripture in. The Shema was one of the scriptures. There's four passages of scriptures. They would write on little tiny scrolls, and then they would put it in this tiny little box, and then they would take it and they would attach it to their forehead. And, and that came from a fulfillment of you're to keep the law ever before your eyes. And so they, they put it now on their forehead like that and, you know, in fulfillment. And, and then what they started to do was, you know, well, he had a little bit bigger box than I had. So I went and got a bigger box and now he got a bigger box so I got a bigger box and pretty soon they got these giant boxes on their head and, and Jesus is pointing out the ridiculousness of the boxes, the size of the boxes. You're competing even in that. And he says, in, in, in the fringes that are around, that, that you are wearing, you're, they're, they're enlarging them. Look at, look at how ostentatious they are, the way that they are drawing attention. Now, uh, the fringes, that, that began from the scripture that God gave to the Jews that's found back in Numbers. And it says, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations, and to put a blue thread in the tassels of the corners. And you shall have the tassel that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them, and that you may not follow the harlotry to which your own heart and your own eyes are inclined, and that you may remember and do all my commandments and be holy for your God." I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God, and I am the Lord your God. So they were to put these tassels on the four corners of their garment so that as they walked about and as they started to, to, to be tempted, they, they would see the tassels and remind themselves uh, now to be holy, that I'm committed to the Lord. And so it was this visual constant reminder to walk in the ways of God. So uh, these tassels then, uh, they changed those over time to become a fringe that they wore around their garment. And then the fringe was moved to the inner garment and just the bottom of the fringe uh, would uh, hang out. And today that has been continued to the prayer shawl that the Jews will wear, that the pious Jews will wear, and they will have the tassels on the ends of the prayer shawl. But uh, here in Jesus' this day they had taken the fringes and now they made them into these big gigantic fringes for everybody to see that they've got their fringes and and Jesus is pointing out now the hypocrisy of the way that they are just one-upping each other in, in these areas somehow demonstrating that the length of your fringe had something to do with your pious commitment <laughs> to God Kind of like with Bibles, you know, and you got the small Bible and the medium-sized Bible, you got the big Bible, and I got the Bible I have to carry on my shoulder, you know, to bring in because the size of your Bible has something to do with your commitment to God. <laughs> the outward manifestations that aren't connected in any way, shape, or form to a heart that is toward God. He says they love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and, and to be called by men, rabbi, rabbi. 
They love the best places at the feast, to sit on the left and the right hand of the host. Those were the two positions of, of honor, and then the closest to the host from their descending was the order of importance of your guests. And, and so when the, uh, the, when the Pharisees were at a feast, they were wanting the left and the right hand of the, uh, of the host. They wanted those positions of honor in the synagogue. The back seats, those were reserved for children and, and on up to where the front seats were considered to be the best seats that were in the synagogue. That's if you were out there, but then there were seats that faced the people. And that's where the Pharisees wanted to sit. Up on the platform, facing the people with that pious look on their face, yes, and the people would look up at them and admire them and, and awe when they're in their services. Greetings in the marketplaces. Greetings in the Near East has a whole culture to itself that in the West we really don't have, but honor and respect and greetings, and, and they loved those greetings, and, and to be respected as rabbi. Rabbi means teacher, and so it is this, this exalted title that a person has that people are respectfully calling you rabbi. But verse 8, Jesus says, but you do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. We see here that, that they are not to exalt one another with the title of teacher because we see that there is only one teacher. There is only one head of the church, and that is Jesus Christ. And, and so he is the only one that we are to exalt and that we are to honor. He says, and do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father. He who is in heaven. And so here we see that you know, we have a paternal father. And our paternal father is the, you know, the giver of our life. And you have one spiritual father. And that one spiritual father is God. And he is the one that is to be acknowledged as our spiritual father. We are not to give credit to any man as being our spiritual father. There is one spiritual father, and that is God. I like what Pastor Chuck Smith wrote. He said, the father is that which has begotten. And he is the one who gives life. And spiritually, there is only one who has given you spiritual life, and that is God. So don't call any man father. There is no man that gives you spiritual life. It is God who has given you spiritual life. So you can call your earthly father father, but as a Christian, as a believer within the, the, the community of believers, there is no place to call father except for our father who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, he says, verse 10. For one is your teacher, uh, the Christ. And so uh, here we see that Jesus now uh, adds emphasis where he says, don't be called rabbi. And rabbi just means teacher. But here uh, also, mm, teacher, do not be called mm, teacher. He says in verse 11, speaking now about the kingdom of, of God, but he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. And so there was this desire for them to have these positions of leadership, not because they cared about leading and leading well, but they wanted the respect 
that a leader received. And, and so they wanted the praise of, uh, of man. And Jesus says that in, in the world, you have that praise that goes with leadership. But in the kingdom of God, there's an inversion that takes place. That leadership is to be servant leadership. And you remember how Jesus drives that point home at the Last Supper when on their way in, the disciples are arguing with each other over who's the greatest. And, and no one will wash each other's feet. And so they all sit down with dirty feet and... And Jesus stands up and goes and takes his outer garment off and picks up the towel and the basin of water. And he humbles himself and he washes all of their feet. And he says, an example that I have set before you, for even the Son of Man, even God incarnate, did not come to be served here upon this earth, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so as we are bid to follow Christ, then leadership needs to be modeled in the fashion of Christ's leadership, and that is a servant leadership. Not only did Jesus walk it and demonstrate it, he instructs us here into that leadership of the servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, you remember the Pharisees. They're the ones who exalted themselves in all of these areas. And, and we see that they now are going to be humbled. But Jesus says that if you will humble yourself, then you are going to be exalted. And so the importance of humility, the absence of pride, servanthood in the kingdom of God, these are the principles now that the foundation of the church is is built upon. Jesus now is going to take and, and he is going to direct seven woes towards the scribes and the Pharisees, seven judgments specifically. He has criticized and kind of shown uh, some of the hypocrisy of the uh, religious leaders, of the scribes and Pharisees, but, uh, but now he is going to, uh, to record here seven woes uh, of Jesus uh, against them. And, and the first woe begins in verse 13, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. A hypocrite. For Jesus to say to the multitudes that the scribes and the Pharisees are the hypocrites would have just been stunning. The, these are the people that the, 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 that the Jews admired and respected as being the most pious of all of the Jews, of, uh, of the men that have committed themselves to living out God's law. And, and now Jesus says to them that they are hypocrites. He has just cast a stone of judgment at, at the very core of who they wish that they could be, but they have to work and they have to live in the real world and they can't join those that are, that are idealistic like the Pharisee and living in those ivory towers. But he just called those that were their, you know, their heroes and their role models, he just says that, that they are hypocrites. And, and he says, woe to you. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. When you read that, what look on Jesus' face do you imagine? Is it, when you read that, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, do you see an angry Jesus? 
Do you see eyes that blazing in judgment and, you know, and woe to you, scribes and, and Pharisees, you know? Or do you see a loving father that, that is saying, woe to you, woe is coming because you are on the wrong path and with like your adult children where they're making bad decisions and, and you say to them, you know, that's, that's not going to end well for you. You know, you are, you are headed down the wrong path. Life experiences and the truth of the word of God let you know when somebody is heading for a fall, you know, when they are going to fall into calamity and, and it breaks your heart. You can't make decisions for other people, but, you know, you, you see, you know, the writing is on the wall. And so, you know, is, is it more of a, a, a lament, woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, guys, you, you think you're right, but you're wrong. You think you're headed in the right direction, you're headed in the wrong direction. It's interesting because that word in the original language has both in it. It, it, it has the, the, the judgment inside of it, but it also has the lament inside of it. It has the, the Greek tragedy, you know, inside to it as well. And so, you know, there are so many moments in the Bible that I want the video, you know. I want to see, you know, because the expression on his face and the body language and, and the intensity of the volume of his, uh, of his voice and all of these things add, add so much to what is the meaning. I think when you see God as an angry God that's ready to judge and waiting to judge, you will, you will hear Jesus. You will put into Jesus that, uh, that angry tone. When you see God as a reconciling, loving, gentle, merciful God that wills that none should perish and that everybody should come to everlasting life, then, then, then you see more of the lament in the woe. But with ever intensity that, that he gave it, his message was perfectly clear. That they were involved in hypocrisy. And, and Jesus is calling out, he's pointing out to them the hypocrisy that, that, that is in their life. He says, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. You shut up the kingdom of heaven, the, the kingdom of God. This is what Jesus came to, to establish and, and to welcome everybody in and to invite everybody into the kingdom. And the Pharisees, who should have been the first ones in, when Jesus says the kingdom is open, they, they should have been the first ones running into the kingdom. But instead, they wouldn't enter in. And then what were they doing with their influence? They were telling everybody else not to enter in. They were telling everybody else, don't trust Jesus. Don't listen to what he's saying. Don't follow him. And they opposed him, tried to embarrass him and humiliate him and ultimately to destroy him. He says, you who are committed to God, who are looked up at as the most spiritual men in the nation, that when God's own son comes and stands before you, rather than embracing him, you are seeking to destroy him. Woe, woe to you. Woe to you, he says in verse 15, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, 
For you travel land and sea. Oh, let's do verse 14 first. <laughs> That's the second woe. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, and therefore you will receive greater condemnation. In the Old Testament, it said that we are to protect the widows and to look after them and to defend them. And, and so the religious leaders, the Pharisees, they, that was part of their responsibility. But instead, they were taking advantage of the widows and, and of their wealth, he says. And, and you make long prayers. And, and for a pretense, you make these long prayers. And, and so here again, they would make these prayers to impress the people with their spirituality. But in the meantime, they are now oppressing the very widows that they're supposed to be defending and protecting. Woe to you, verse 15, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Jesus here is is speaking candidly. He is pointing out the hypocrisy in, in their life. They would go to great ends to make a proselyte. A proselyte was someone now that would become their sect. They would join their, their Phariseeism and, and whether they were a Gentile into the Jewish faith and then in or whether they were just a Jew, the, the proselyte, they would go to great efforts. But he says here that, that when they're following you, what are they doing? You, you only care not about them following truth. You want your sect to be the largest sect. And, and so uh, you are making them as misguided now as you yourselves are. It was not to God that the Pharisees sought to lead people. It was to their own sect. And that was their sin. As we close our study there, I, I want to draw our attention for just a minute, right, right back to these woes, back to where Jesus says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. And so, you know, formulaic, he, he begins all of the seven woes with that exact same expression. But it, it's that word, you know, hypocrite, the hypocrite. Hypocrisy is the act of claiming to believe something and then you're acting in a different manner. It's derived from the Greek term for an actor. A hypocrite was literally an, an actor. And back in those days, the actors wore the masks, those big giant masks. And, and they would have a big smile on their face for the comment. And they would have the big frown and the actor would be behind this mask. And and so the hypocrite became the, uh, an actor. It means that you're pretending to be something that you're not. That's hypocrisy. When, when you want people to believe something that you're not. Actors today, what do they do? They pretend. In every single movie that you watch, in every single show, they're pretending to be somebody that that's not actually who they are. That's just the character that they're pretending to be. They project and pretend to be somebody that that's not actually who they are. 
that's the essence or the meaning behind uh, the word hypocrisy. And so, hypocrisy, pretending to be what you're not. The root behind hypocrisy is a deception. You're deceiving the people that are around you. You're, you're pretending something that, that doesn't have truth or merit that is behind it. And, and so, hypocrisy is a form of deception. Now, uh, Isaiah, uh, we see that he condemned the hypocrisy of, uh, of his day. He, he says, the Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips. He says, but their hearts are far from me and their worship uh, of me is made up only of rules taught by men. He, the hypocrisy was that they were pretending, listen, to have a relationship with God but they didn't actually have a relationship with God. And so there is this deception. Jesus said and quoted this about uh, from Isaiah when he also said the same thing back in chapter 15 of the, uh, of the people of, uh, of his day. And so uh, here we see that, uh, that they were pretending to be men that love God, but really they did not. And so the hypocrisy, the, the hypocrite, pretending to be what you are not. We see in every form of it, it that God tells us that he wants us to be authentic and that he wants us to be transparent and that he wants us to be real. You see, this is the whole issue, the biblical issue now that is behind transgenderism. Transgenderism is a form of hypocrisy. They are pretending to be what they actually are not. And so we see that that is the same issue, the same biblical issue with regards to cross-dressing. Now, we know that cross-dressing is wrong because the Bible clearly says it. In Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 5, a woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man, nor shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all who do so are an abomination to the Lord your God. And so we see that God clearly, emphatically in the law states that men are not to dress like women and pretend to be women, and women are not to dress like men and pretend to be men. But here's the question, why? Why, why does what you wear, why, did, why would God say that and, and prohibit that? Well, because God wants us to be authentically who we are. When a man dresses up like a woman, he wants people to think he's a woman. When a woman dresses up like a man, she wants them to think that she is a man. You see, there is an attack in our culture upon the very gender, but God is very concerned about the proper order of things. Our God is a God that does things decently and in order, and he does not want want and confusion. And so we have very definitive roles that he has given to us. You see, gender isn't just about your sex. It's about the role that God has called you to play. Males are to be masculine, and this is the role for the man. Women, they're to be feminine. This is the role of the woman. And your gender, you are biologically designed to 
biologically designed for the gender that God created you to be. So we see that roles are being cast out in our culture today and genders are being cast out. But men and women, we're not interchangeable. We're not biologically interchangeable and the roles that God has called us to are not interchangeable. And so we are not to enter into confusion and pretend to be who we are not. When a man dresses like a woman, it doesn't make him a woman. It doesn't make him a woman. I'm sorry. It makes you a man dressing like a woman. That, that's all that it makes you. And you see, transgenderism is just cross-dressing taken to the next level. You see, in transgenderism, we now have the technology in order to be able to alter you physically. But you see, when you are cross-dressing, you're taking manufactured clothing and you're wearing that. But that doesn't change your identity. Transgenderism is taking manufactured body parts and then putting those on and wearing them, just like clothes. But guess what? It doesn't change who you are. And so you are just trying to deceive everybody around you that you are what in fact, biologically, and by God's created design, you are not. And so it is a form of hypocrisy, of not being authentic and transparent, not embracing who God created you to be. Not only is it a form of hypocrisy, but also I want you to understand it from a biblical standpoint that it is an attack on the sovereignty of God. You see, the person who is a transgender says that they're different from others. They've always known that they are different. The normal narrative is, is that from a young age, I've noticed that I haven't fit in. They are not socially well-adjusted. They are maladjusted in the culture. They feel different. They feel like they are different from everybody else. And they come to the conclusion that they are actually, the reason why they're different is they're actually a mistake that they have the wrong body, that they suddenly discover that they're a man that's trapped inside of a woman's body or they're a woman that's trapped inside of a man's body. And now they will be happy as soon as they remedy this error. And so as soon as they can change their body to match their identity and correct the mistake that has been made in their life. Ultimately, what is that saying? Ultimately, that is saying that God made a mistake with me and God put me in the wrong body. That is an attack on the sovereignty of God. You may feel confused. You may feel like you don't fit in. You, you may feel like you're different from everybody else, but God doesn't make mistakes. Amen? So you've come to the wrong conclusion with your feelings and how you have adjusted to the environment around you. And so it is just confusion. It is sin. It's no different than any other sin. But there is hypocrisy that is involved in it at its core. And there is also the attack on the sovereignty of God. So hypocrisy, God tells us that it's wrong in every aspect, in every form of hypocrisy. He says to, to be careful in the church 
that there are going to be wolves in sheep's clothing. That's a hypocrite. That, that is a, a wolf that is there for the wrong reasons. They pretend to be Christians, but they're not really Christians. They're, they're there for other reasons. There's, there's people that want to merchandise God's people. There, there are people that want access to the community of God to be able to further their careers careers or, or sell their products and they, and they see the church community as this economic place that they can further themselves. Their, their heart isn't here to worship God. They'll smile and sing the songs and sit through the messages, but they're a hypocrite. They're pretending to be what they're not. We see that also, you know, Jesus talks about whitewashed tombs and how that's hypocrisy. It pretends to be clean on the outside, and, and that speaks about self-righteousness. There is hypocrisy that, uh, that we are warned against as, as Christians, Christian hypocrisy. We need to be careful of it uh, as well. And, and, and Christian hypocrisy, we see that Jesus says to, to remove the plank from your own eye before you, you call out the speck that is in your, your brother's eye. That is hypocrisy, saying that you are more righteous than them rather than uh, we are all sinners saved by uh, grace. Uh, the, there is that judgmental superiority of being a better Christian than uh, others. And and that is pretending to be who you're not. God wants us to live authentically and transparently before him, truthfully, in all areas uh, of our life. And we would ask God today to show us, is there any way in which we are pretending with others? Is there any form of hypocrisy that is in our own hearts and, and that the Lord would reveal and remove any hypocrisy that we might be authentic in our relationship with God and be transparent as believers in Christ? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word and God for your clarity that you bring. And so we ask, Lord, that, that you would minister to our own hearts first. And, and Lord, help us to see if there is any hypocrisy that is unpleasing to you in our lives. Help us to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. May we not be in a relationship with rules, but may we be in a relationship with you, the true and the living God. It's in Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen.